0: Welcome to the Expat Empire Podcast, the podcast where you can hear from expats around the world and learn how you can join them. Before we get to the interview, I want to let you all know that we have just released a brand new two-part online course series about moving abroad on Udemy. The first course, How to Move, Live, and Work Abroad, Start Your Expat Journey, is all about what you need to do before your moving date. The second course, How to Move, Live, and Work Abroad, Settling into Expat Life, covers what you'll need to do in the first year after moving to a new destination. We're running a limited-time, 50% discount offer on both courses through Monday, May 24th, 2021, so head to expatempire.com for more information. With that said, let's start the conversation. Hey Josh, thanks so much for joining us today on the Expat Empire podcast.
1: Hey David, I'm glad to be here, man. Been looking forward to talking with you again.
0: Yeah, absolutely. It was super fun talking for your show. And I know there's a ton of different stuff for us to talk about. We have some similarities in our experiences and some big differences as well. So excited to get into that. And uh, if you could help me just and really the audience by telling us a bit about your background, where you're originally from, where around the world you've lived so far, and where you are right now, that would really help.
1: Yeah, sure thing. Well, was born and raised in a small town in rural Michigan, and I'm talking a pretty small town. Uh, technically, we're considered a village, you know, about population 1,100 people. Everybody knows everybody. Uh, you got to be careful who you ask out on a date because you all might actually be related, you know, type right. of uh, small town. And around the time I graduated high school, I made the decision to join the military. I served for four years in uh, the Marine Corps. Then following that experience, just tried being a regular college student, got my bachelor's degree in elementary education, and I took that degree and I decided to apply it to the Peace Corps. Uh, the Peace Corps has a very large education sector that led me uh, to the Gambia in West Africa to serve for two years as a Peace Corps volunteer. But following that experience, I've had a little bit of a paradigm shift. Uh, I wasn't really quite feeling uh, the education uh, side of things uh, very much following that experience, uh, mostly just because I became very, very curious. And of course, as you know all too well, uh, David, living abroad yourself is that having experiences like that leave you much more curious to see what else is out there in the world. So, and I'm sure we'll talk about this a little bit more in, in depth as we go on in this conversation, but I cultivated that curiosity and I... Um, Decided to uh, move to England to pursue a different career path, and I decided to settle in on archaeology. You know, just having this uh, amazing experience living with a culture entirely different from my own uh, for two years, which, again, just really kind of comes with being an expat. I decided to uh, pursue archaeology, and I got a master's degree in field archaeology from the University of York. York is uh, situated in the northern part of England and I've been doing professional archaeology work for about three years now. I'm currently uh, back in the the U.S. I live in uh, North Florida, and um, but who knows? I'm about to go through a transition here before too long, and maybe I'll find myself abroad again.
0: All right. Sounds great. Well, there's definitely a lot for us to dig into there, but I was just curious. I'm sure we'll get to it at the end, but before we jump to the very beginning of your story, what exactly do you do professionally as an archaeologist? I'm just curious about that career and Maybe how it helps you to itch a little bit of that curiosity that you said that you've cultivated over the last handful of years.
1: Yeah, my current profession does uh, keep me traveling uh, quite a bit. Actually, in fact, just last week, I came back from uh, the U.S. Virgin Islands. I was there for uh, three weeks. But much of my work in archaeology is centers around uh, what we call compliance archaeology. Um, you know, I work um, in the federal sector for archaeology, and uh, one of the things that we have to do is on federal lands, they have what's called the National Historic Preservation Act, meaning that before any, under, any undertaking can take place on federal lands, whether it's putting in a new parking lot, um, you know, building a new building, whatever the case may be, the grounds have to be archaeologically inspected first to make sure there's no, you know, cultural heritage uh, remains or human r- remains uh, in that area that they want to build. And so I will actually go to do testing. Either you, it's usually with me as part of a team, and we'll go, we'll do varying uh, excavations and surveys just to see what uh, the grounds like. And then after we're done testing, you know, we can kind of give our approval as to you know whether or not we think this area is uh, clear of any archaeological remains so they can begin building so that's primarily uh, what i do not really quite as glamorous as what i think many people would <laughs> think of you know i'm not you know just barging into tombs looking for that single one <laughs> artifact that belongs in a museum somewhere i'm not battling with the forces of evil over these things either so, but yeah, you know, it's kind of a little bit of an overview, and it does keep me on the road quite a bit, like I mentioned. Uh, you know, yeah. I just I just came back from the Virgin Islands after three weeks of slugging it out there. I'm actually heading up to uh, Kentucky in a couple of days from our recording t- for a couple of weeks. And then from there, I'm going to be doing some work in Southern Georgia, possibly bumping back to to Mississippi. So, you know, so for someone like me who, you know, loves to travel and loves to be on the road, you know, it's it's pretty fitting. But though sometimes, as as of course, we all know too well uh, being expatriates is that sometimes it could be a little bit weary, Mm -hmm. you know, give or take. But very rewarding nonetheless, though. So but yeah, that's kind of an overview of what I do.
0: Great. No, that's amazing. I love to hear that. And I'm sure we'll get into it a bit more. So going back to your origins, it sounds like it was quite a small town that you grew up in. So I'd love to know how you got this bug or addiction for being abroad and traveling. And obviously, that's a huge part of your life now. So where where did it start for you? Where did that first experience happen or the idea into your head?
1: Yeah, you know, that's a really good point. You know, my small town isn't exactly, you know, a hot spot for world travelers and, you know, sometimes it can be tricky going back to my hometown after all my experiences and trying to share everything because, you know, there's issues with relatability. Not everyone can relate to what it's like to live abroad, travel the world, you know, which which is fine, you know, of course. But I'd say like the initial travel bug had to come from my 2-week study abroad trip that I took in college uh, to Japan. And of course, you yourself, again, haven't lived in Japan for a couple of years, you know that it is a wondrous place. You know, the cities are amazing. The people are wonderful. The food is delicious. The countryside is just breathtakingly beautiful. And... um Sure, certainly, talking up the country pretty well and for good reason,
0: of course. For good reason, yes.
1: Yeah. And that was actually the first country that I visited outside of the US. So I definitely got a very, very good experience, uh, international travel experience right off the bat. And this is also, this is definitely where the curiosity and the travel bug came from because, you know, this was just one country out of 193 countries out there and uh the first one that i've seen outside of my own and i'm just thinking well what else is out there you know i got to see uh what else is out there and what kind of led me to uh make the decision to live abroad in the gambia west africa for peace corps was and i hope i'm not getting too ahead of your question here but you know when i graduated from high school and of course doing this trip to japan this was in my second to last semester. So I was kind of nearing the end of my uh, college experience. So of course, the thoughts were coming to mind. Well, what am I going to do? I mean, I have to do something uh, after college. And my undergrad being in elementary education, you know, I was looking for teaching jobs, of course. And I graduated from a university in Michigan. Now, at the time, the job market for teachers in Michigan was just in awful shape. I mean, they were closing down schools they were letting go of teachers left and right they had much more licensed teachers in the state than they actually had jobs for everybody so there was a little bit of um, doom and gloom kind of sort of feeling on the horizon i'm thinking to myself well you know what am i supposed to do now i mean am i going to just do all this hard work for the last few years just to get unemployed and so I had to start looking at other options, and I kind of had to look outward a little bit um, outside of my home state. And then I'm not sure exactly how I came across the Peace Corps, but as I started looking into the Peace Corps, and I was seeing that they had loads of opportunities and they had much need for people with uh, educational experience, you know, something I just so happened to have skills in. You know, I looked into it a little bit more, and I ultimately applied. And after a very, very, very long and daunting application process, I was invited to go to West Africa to serve as a teacher trainer. And you know, that's uh, what led me to my first uh, you know time uh, living abroad. But yes, it, it absolutely began with just this two week study abroad to uh, Japan. And you know, I think what led me to choose Japan for my first trip. Um and of course the culture is something I was r- really uh, fascinated to learn about. Um I'm a martial artist, you know, I grew up uh, doing karate, so of course hearing stories about, you know, the samurai and the ninja and other uh you know Japanese martial art styles was something that led me to uh to take interest in that country. And also this was the first time that this particular trip was being offered at my university. You know, they had tons of study abroad opportunities to you know countries in Europe, but not really quite so much in Asia. And so, just when I and then when I found out that this particular professor was doing this trip to Japan, I knew I had to capitalize on it. So I was kind of part of the uh, beta test group. And I think he's done several trips following uh, this because it actually went really well. And all the students who went had an amazing time.
0: and And as you can tell, for me,
1: it was the type of experience that led me on a path of even more adventures following that.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Um, and so that was actually after your initial time in the military as well, right? Did you have experiences going abroad for that or was that more U.S. focused?
1: Yeah, that was more uh, U.S. focused. I was attached to what was called a non-deployable unit. Long story short is that uh, my unit was, uh, in. Uh, we, we what we did is we tested aircraft. Uh, mm-hmm. There was a particular aircraft called the V-22 Osprey. Kind of like a, I kind of describe it as like a hybrid between an airplane and um, a helicopter. People have probably seen it in movies. It's made the rounds in various mm-hmm. uh, Hollywood films uh, ever since. You know, it became operational. My unit was tasked with uh, doing a series of test flights to get this aircraft approved to go operational to be used overseas. Because at the time, it hadn't been used in uh, Iraq or Afghanistan. So to in order to do that, we had to kind of stay put. You know, they didn't want right. us like being scattered uh, on deployments. They wanted us focused on just getting this aircraft uh, operational. So uh, and I say, unfortunately, I didn't get a chance to deploy. Now, some people would say it's kind of strange that, you know, right. if I didn't have if I was able to stay away from a combat zone during my service, I kind of had it made, which. You know, I'd say yeah, there's some validity to that, but you know, I was a marine, and, that, right. and my job was to be a service to my country. And you know, I think to some degree, I might have would have liked to have the experience mm. of uh, deploying, but of course, you know, I'm I'm 35 now, so I'm well past <laughs> that. <Yeah>. You know, <laughs> the, the the chances right. to actually you know enlist again and, and deploy, but but yeah, so that's just a little bit of a quick side note on my military service.
0: Yeah, yeah, that's interesting to hear that. Do you think that any of that experience had an impact on your interest in being in the Peace Corps or was it just completely unrelated in your head? I, Having done neither of those two things, I'm not sure if there's a connection there, but I just wanted to see if there was any of that in the back of your mind.
1: No, I wouldn't say necessarily having the military experience led me to do uh, the Peace Corps. However, I will say that many things that I picked up in the Marine Corps were very applicable to my Peace Corps service, um, or at least going about my Peace Corps service, you know, especially just kind of uh, the discipline and the grittiness, because Living in a developing country like the Gambia and living in a rural village way out in the middle of nowhere where you don't have running water, you don't have a lot of modern amenities that, well, quite frankly, many of us kind of take for granted, you know, like electricity, air conditioning, uh, all those uh, creature comforts that were pretty much non existent where I was living. You know, a, a lot of the mental toughness that I picked up from the Marine Corps as well, because obviously you go through boot camp and you have. Really intense drill instructor screaming in your face for three months straight, you know, you tend to build up a little bit of resilience. And that's very applicable to not just uh, living in a developing country, but in many other facets of life uh, as well. But of course, so I'd say just the skill set that I've developed mentally definitely went a long way when I was trying to get adjusted to just life in this uh, developing country. And Yeah, because it it definitely uh, wasn't easy. Um, It's it's definitely its own unique (laughs) set of challenges. You know, again, everything from lots of physical discomforts. uh, It was about 107 degrees Fahrenheit most days uh, there. (laughs) And like I said, I had no air conditioning. You know, I just had like a little hand fan that I would have to just like use vigorously just to try to keep myself cool. And if I wanted to collect water, um, or if I rather if I wanted to have uh, water to drink, I would have to collect it. And, you mm-hmm. know, there was like communal taps in my village and they would only come on for a couple hours during the day. And for, and for some reason, I found this interesting. They were powered by solar panels. They actually had like a small, like little solar mm-hmm. panel set up just uh, outside the village. And uh, so I would have to just take buckets and pails when these uh, water taps would come on fill them up, carry them back to my house, run them through their paces. I had to put them through a filter and then actually right. put a and put and put a couple drops of bleach in the water too, because water in this part of the world, you know, you can expect to have a lot of uh waterborne parasites like uh dysentery and giardia. And I contracted both oh. <laughs> of those when I was living there. Um I won't get into the gory details if anyone's curious feel free to google it but yeah it's a <laughs> little bit of a sad story <laughs> when oh, I, when I contracted both of those things but yeah so just to kind of um yeah get back to your question um even though there wasn't really much um motivation from my marine corps right. service to actually go and pursue peace corps um the interest in doing peace corps more or less strictly came out of uh, just me being in Elementary education major, and then, of course, just having this curiosity and this travel bug that I picked up from my Japan experience. and so yeah, that's ultimately what kind of led me to do that.
0: Yeah, that makes perfect sense. So it sounds like it was a very intense and long um, application process, and ultimately you were successful. so I, of course, I want to hear about what was the what the application process entailed. But also, I can imagine that of course, you passed that, you were able to get this assignment. And other people didn't pass and some did, but were they actually able to tough it out in those situations? Because I can imagine, like you're saying, that your Marine, you know, military experience gave you the mental toughness to be able to go through some of the difficulties that you just talked about. So, um, you know, is, is it is it just a tough route that people really need to think long and hard about if they want to go down that? And, you know, would love to hear just your thoughts on it and, and the overall application process as well.
1: Yeah, sure thing. Yeah, I definitely would say that when it comes to becoming a Peace Corps volunteer, um character is something that Peace Corps recruiters are going to look very uh, closely into because yes, it does take quite a bit to uh, you know, commit 2 years of your life to doing uh, this type of service because that's like the minimum that the Peace Corps is going to ask for is uh, 2 years and there are instances where some volunteers will even extend longer than that, but the two years is the minimum that they'll last for. And um, for me, and I'm not sure if Peace Corps has changed their standards uh, since then, uh, this was uh, 2012 to 2014 when I had served. But at the time, I had to have at least a bachelor's degree in order to to apply. And um, I also had to go through uh, like a whole battery of interviews and physical uh, health screenings I had to go to Chicago for an interview, and that was just for me to even get nominated. Now, when I'm Mm -hmm. nominated, that doesn't mean I actually have an assignment yet. It just means that I'm just one step further to uh, possibly getting accepted to actually serve uh, in the Peace Corps. And um, so I had to go to Chicago uh, for my interview. And then after I was nominated, that's when I got like a big packet of a bunch of forms that I had to get filled out by a doctor. and everything from blood work that I needed to get done, um, immunizations that I needed. And I also had to get some dental screening done uh, as well. And this was just to determine, um, to make sure that I don't have any physical ailments that would prevent me from being successful. And so it was just a really, really long drawn out process. It took me almost like a year to apply. And, And I think the reason why Peace Corps set it up that way, and of course, I'm just speculating here, I haven't actually really confirmed this, but I imagine that having a bachelor's degree as a requirement and having this lengthy a- application process, it's their way of determining as to whether or not you're actually committed to doing this. Because, you know, I think the, the idea is if someone has the willingness to endure four years, possibly even more, to get a bachelor's degree and to go through this, they're going to stick it out. And go through the rigors of what it takes to be a Peace Corps volunteer while they're actually uh, in country. Because there have been many instances, and I've heard uh, these stories once I actually was serving, is that you'll have Peace Corps volunteers, like from the early days when there wasn't you know, quite so much in the way of uh, requirements, will show up to the airport, are hugging and saying goodbye to their families, getting ready to walk through uh, the security checkpoint only to to actually have it really dawn on them that oh crap i'm actually about to you know <laughs> g- yeah. give two years of my life to this two years <laughs> away from family you know two years over you know what what whatever else that they might be thinking of and it's it's really hard to do that and uh, even though i knew i was committed there was definitely a lot of there was kind of like sort of the fear of missing out of a lot of things because you know the world doesn't stop turning you know because we decide to go move abroad somewhere and you know relationships that we've might have had can can change um you know you you may say no to a couple of potential job opportunities mm-hmm. to go volunteer and you know the peace corps doesn't exactly isn't exactly the most lucrative uh route financially either so and yeah you know <laughs> it was yeah. it was definitely it was de- it's definitely um you know a lot there to become a volunteer and And I guess like the second part of your question for like for volunteers who maybe didn't have like prior experience like mine with military or whatever, you know, a lot of them them did really well because they were very good socially. Like they Mm -hmm. they just they were just really good human beings and you know they knew how to interact with people. And another big component to being a Peace Corps volunteer and well, quite frankly, just being an expatriate in general is just to have an open mind because being around and living amongst a culture that may be entirely different from your own. And of course, in Western cultures, you know, like with yourself, having been in Germany and Portugal, you do see a lot of similarities, but there are still some differences. And then, of course, going to a developing country in West Africa, a lot, there's a ton of differences culturally speaking. So just having an open mind to kind of adjust to those because, you know, you tend to see things that are going to be a, a bit strange. Mm-hmm. And, uh, but I think one, one thing that I noticed that a lot of the volunteers that I serve with had done really well is just kind of having, again, that curiosity, you know, if they see something that they find strange about a culture, you know, they want to learn more about it, you know, they'll ask questions, and they'll just kind of just immerse themselves uh, with this culture that they're now a part of. And then when you decide to do that, when you decide to go into those situations, whether it's living abroad, traveling abroad with an open mind. It's very rewarding. you know you pick up a lot of uh, you know there's a lot of things that you um, pick up that you maybe might have been unfamiliar with before, and it's sometimes it's getting out of your comfort zone <laughs> in order to do so as we know all too well. But it's a very enriching
0: experience uh, for sure. So when you look back at that time, how do you feel about the experience overall? Obviously, there were a number of challenges and difficulties, an extremely you know intensive application process. You were there for the two years. You came in with some expectations, I'm sure, about what the role would be. And um, I think you ended up leaving after, you know, just those initial two years, which I suppose is standard. But just curious on, as you reflect on it, what was that experience like for you? And and would you recommend it to other people as well?
1: Yeah, absolutely. And again, it, it certainly wasn't an easy experience. Uh, lots of challenges, but just like anything else in life is that the challenging experiences are often the ones that kind of mold us uh, in the way for the better. And we're able to extrapolate a lot of life lessons and, um, and I say tools to add to our toolbox, meaning mentally, uh, moving forward uh, as well. And, you know, and I think I definitely would recommend that experience. And it was also just kind of like the experience that just opened up so many other doors uh, for me too. And again uh, I keep going back to uh curiosity, you know, curiosity is of course just like one of the most basic things that I think we as humans have experienced ever since the beginning, you know, if you think about cavemen who saw the sunset over that mountain range and they wondered what was on the other side of those <laughs> mountains so they decided to venture forth or someone who saw this vast body of water in front of them and tried to build something that would float on it. You know, so when I look back uh, on on this experience And just again, being immersed with this culture that was entirely uh, different from my own, and learning, trying to learn a language that not even a percentage of the percentage of the world population can speak. Um, (laughs) I was trying to speak uh, Sarah Hule, and also the relationships that I developed with uh, my host family. And you know, my host family consisted of um, I had a host father who was married to two wives. Yep, polygamous marriages (laughs) um, were, were were a thing, and then also there was a lot of just embracing a more minimalistic lifestyle mm. that I also found a lot of benefit into. Like, uh, before we hit record here, I was telling you about how, when I moved to the Gambia, it was just whatever I could fit into two check bags and a carry on. And actually when I came back from, from, from Gambia, I had less stuff than what mm. I actually uh, mm. went there with. And it was just a really good eye opener because, it reminded me that i can do just fine uh, with less you know and i think sometimes uh, growing up in a western uh, country like the united states um i'm not going to say everybody i don't want to you know you know paint everyone with the same brush but there's a tendency amongst many um people here to be a bit materialistic you know we like mm-hmm. our stuff you know we like our our laptops our tvs our smartphones our cars our you know closet full of clothes and so on and so forth and I think that there's just this experience just kind of reminding me just to focus on what's most important. And for me, it's not those shiny objects. It's kind of the relationships and the experiences uh, that I can have. You know, I I really love the, the adage, you know, collect experiences and not things. And, right. and I'm, I don't even know if I'm on track with your original question, but <laughs> okay. I hope you like this <laughs> response. Uh, no, I like it
0: very much, please. yeah, I, yeah,
1: I hope you like this response uh, n- nonetheless. And I think about just looking far down the line when I'm at the end of my life, you know, which I hope is you know when I'm over 100 years old, or something <laughs> like that, you know, when I look back on, on my life, I'm not going to reflect on the things that I've owned. Like I'm not going refl- um, to th- think myself, "Man, I'm so happy I bought that you know fancy new game console," or "I'm so glad that I bought that." You know, brand new T-shirt or whatever the case may be. What I'm going to reflect on is the experiences that I've had and uh, the relationships that I developed along the way. Where and I I would say I'm so glad that I committed myself to uh, you know being a good boyfriend or a good husband. Um, I'm so glad that I decided to um, immerse myself with that culture and got to learn so many fascinating things about them. And or I'm so glad that I actually just. You know, decided to take the leap to buy that plane ticket when I thought that maybe I didn't have it in the budget to do so, and I Mm -hmm. went and I had that amazing experience in you know wherever it is that I decided to go. So that's you know how I really kind of like to live life. I like to collect uh, experiences and not things because when we dwell so much on you know buying up things, they come with a lot of maintenance. You know, if if we if we um, if we own a TV the maintenance comes from the cable bill and paying that month uh, paying that monthly subscription to whatever streaming services you want and then of course you know it costs money to to get internet and then you know and if you own a car it's you know you got to do all the upkeep and everything so all these material possessions that we own they come with a lot of maintenance mm. and uh, they come with a lot of subscriptions and <laughs> So whether it's with with your money or with your time to try to again do, right. do that maintenance. So, and of course, I'm not here to bash anyone who, you know, wants to own stuff. I mean, I like nice things just as much as uh the nice person or the next person, but ultimately it's just I want to make sure and remind myself that, you know, these material things, in the end, a lot of it, a lot of them, don't even really matter. It's really just uh, the relationships that I've had with people um, along the way that I've met. Just speaking of, like my host family, uh, the teachers in the school uh, that I was called to serve uh, in my village, the other villagers that I met along the way, you know, the other volunteers that you know we were going through this tough experience together with. And you know those are the those are the things that I really want to um, you know hang on to moving forward and continue to collect those same types of experiences and those same types of relationships uh, moving forward. Um, again, I don't even know if I even answered your original <laughs> question, but no, this
0: was well. Yeah. Yeah. If, I think you did, and I think this was even better. But uh, yeah, I do have a, a couple of things to dive into a little bit there. So you mentioned a, a homestay that experience that you had, so. Is that organized? Is that a standard part of the Peace Corps volunteer experience, or is that something that you, through your own initiative, kind of participated in?
1: Right. Yeah, that's something that the Peace Corps will pretty much already pre-arrange uh, for you. Kind of, kind of the way it works. Um, and again, maybe the Peace Corps may be a little bit different now, but at the time when I went back in uh, 2012, when it comes, you don't necessarily really get to pick which uh, country you go to. You can list regional preferences. Um, and I think at the time my regional preferences—I'm not sure exactly what they were—but I believe they were uh, Southeast Asia, Central Central America, and I believe uh, South America. But ultimately, when the Peace Corps sends you an invitation, it's going to be determined on more or less uh, where your skills are most needed. Mm-hmm. Right. And uh, with me having an education background, you know there was a huge need for education volunteers uh, in West Africa and other parts of the continent. So that's where they invited uh, me to go. And just a quick side note here is that when Peace Corps actually invited me to be a volunteer, it was done very formally. They had FedExed me this big blue envelope with an actual typed out and hand-signed uh, invitation letter uh, to kind of outline uh, the assignment that they want me to, to take part in. And of course, they said the Gambia. And they had all these like supporting documents about the Gambia and the Peace Corps and everything. And so, to me, that told me that if I decline this invitation, mm-hmm. I highly doubt they're going to take the time to assemble another fancy schmancy <laughs> blue envelope like this again to invite me to go someplace else. So it seemed like a very now or never type of deal. So
0: um, right. Right.
1: So so ultimately, I I pondered on this, and I told myself that not only was just this uh, me trying to you know utilize my skills. And of course, obviously, to have a job, you know, I mentioned earlier about how bad the teaching situation was in my home state uh, back then. But I knew that this was a calling greater uh, than myself. And of course, I've had like four years of service already in the Marine Corps, and and I guess maybe also part of me wanting to be a Peace Corps volunteer was to find a way to continue to be of service uh, to others. And so, when I moved there, a- after um, of course accepting uh, this invitation. Uh, the Peace Corps—they've more or less uh, had a way of dividing up uh, my cohort of volunteers. Like you, you'll go there in in groups, kind of scattered at different times. Uh, like I think, like my cohort of volunteers, I want to say there was maybe about seventeen of us, all education volunteers, and so they clustered us to all travel to uh, the Gambia at one time, and then maybe a few months later, um, another cohort of health volunteers would arrive, and then. Agricultural and environmental volunteers would arrive um, a few months following that, and then maybe they'll do another round of education volunteers. So when we got there, um, our sector uh, supervisors, you know they had pretty much already pre-arranged uh, everything before arrival. They've re- went to the different villages to see if they needed uh, education volunteers. They um, talked to village elders to see if there was a, ho- a family that would be willing to host a volunteer uh, for two years, and then they kind of gave them a little bit of insight as to what that would entail, as far as um, you know, compensating them financially for hosting a volunteer and uh, having an agreed upon sort of uh, amount that a volunteer would pay them, uh, and of course, that volunteer would get a stipend in order to you know fulfill that compensation and that agreement. Right so um, pretty much everything was all set up for me. I didn't have to do any sort of groundwork to find myself uh, a place to live or to uh well more or less uh find a job while while I was there and you don't just go straight to your host family you actually- the first uh, couple of months of being in country is actually more training uh you do a little bit of language training uh this gives you a chance to get a little bit more familiar with the culture too, and so during that time, you know, you kind of have uh, direct access to, you know, Peace Corps staff. You know, they're right there. Um, sometimes uh, you might, you may be living around uh, other volunteers because the way it works is you have training village and then you have your actual village. And so, when I was doing my training village, I was living in a village called Madiana. This was kind of close, to, closer to the capital. You know, where Peace Corps uh, uh, Peace Corps headquarters was. So that way, again, we had access uh, to staff if we needed them for anything. And then, of course, we were living around other volunteers, so we didn't have to quite deal with the isolation, you know, from being away from our, our American counterparts uh, just yet. And so that was kind of a good a way to to break us in. And we were living with a host family at the time, you know, again, to kind of get that cultural experience, but it wasn't quite as immersive as, I guess I'll say, quote unquote the real thing." Right. And so, w- once we were done with our few months of training, that's when we were actually legitimately uh, sworn in as volunteers. Uh, we had a ceremony at the ambassador's residence in uh, Banjul, uh, the capital city. Uh, the U.S. ambassador there, um, you know, hosted the ceremony um, on at his residence. And then that's when the and that, following that, that's when we all dispersed to our prearranged uh, sites, as as we call them. And, <laughs> and I guess uh, this is where I wouldn't say my military experience, it, it didn't, I wouldn't say it, it bit me in the back, but my uh, supervisor in, in my sector, uh, she definitely gave me, I wouldn't say like the hardest assignment, <laughs> but the most remote out of uh, everyone in my cohort. Now, if you, if you were to see Gambia on a map, you know, it's, a, it's completely engulfed by Senegal. A small portion of it is touching the Atlantic coast, but then it kind of extends uh, eastward into uh, the continent and kind of like a strip. uh, There's the River Gambia that bisects the country right down the middle. And so it's more or less a river with a little bit of land protruding from the north and south extending uh, eastward. So, and Banjul was on uh, the Atlantic coast, of course. And then um, we were all just kind of scattered as we moved east and i was the furthest one east from the capital <laughs> yeah. so so i was the farthest away from i'm not going to say like well quote unquote civilization right, you know right. it's just um you know and that's also and and i was also the farthest one away from peace corps support um as well too and so since i was the farthest away seldomly did i get very many visits from other volunteers just because logistically of what it took to get to me uh and yeah. so yeah. So th- they felt like I guess given that to me because I guess they kind of felt I was you know apt to handle it pretty well. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> so right. so that was so that was definitely a pretty uh, pretty intense. And so I, I, if I had to let's say get internet access, the nearest place where I can get it was the city of Basse, which is an 18 mile uh, bike ride. And of course, like I've mentioned, it's 107 degrees most days. <laughs> Seldomly do uh, you get enough cloud coverage to properly shade you. So trying to make an 18-mile uh, bike ride just so I can you know, check Facebook and respond to messages was um, a bit of a daunting process. <laughs> so, so I think I handled it well. And I think my supervisor knew I could handle it well. That's why she felt pretty comfortable about giving me uh, that assignment. You know because uh the this particular village uh it was called Baja Kunda, had never hosted a Peace Corps volunteer before, mm-hmm. and uh the school there, which was a basic cycle school, which is roughly about kindergarten to um eighth grade, you know they were looking to have um a volunteer uh come and work in their school there to um help train the teaching staff um on like classroom management techniques and various teaching methods, so they you know, wanted to, they asked for an education volunteer to come and they got me. And I think I did pretty well. You know, i um, the teachers seemed to take to me uh, pretty well. Not all of them were willing to integrate some of my ideas or try out some of mm-hmm. my ideas, though some were, you know, and, uh, so yeah, that's kind of how I ended up in, uh, the village of Bajakunda, you know, and then of course, again, going back to your original question, I tend to get off on these, uh, little side stories, but you know, they, the priest corps arranged everything, you know, it was kind of nice. I just, showed up and and had had a house for me and then also what was also cool I will say this you know my house was pretty simple pretty basic it was just um, a square hut probably about the size of my bedroom that I'm living in here in my town home in Florida and uh, my bathroom was a uh, pit latrine in the backyard and um, you know bad times if I really really have to go to the bathroom and it's pouring rain outside Uh, because I have no cover. <laughs> over that thing. And now for anyone who's wondering about what a pit latrine entails, um just imagine a hole in the ground. I mean, it was a little bit more jazzed up than that. You know, it was um completely cemented and over the hole there were two um foot placements. And I'll just let people lo- use their imagination as what those uh foot placements were for. <laughs> so, right. Right. <laughs> and uh but but since I was the first volunteer there, you know, this house was brand new okay you know this pit latrine had not been used before unlike other volunteers who were stepping in for volunteers that had been there before them and you know the pit latrine has uh well let's just say seen a lot of mileage right, <laughs> if, right. If, if you will and uh and then the house maybe was in need for a little bit of TLC because it was either you know having like let's say cracks in like uh, the cement or you know the roof needed a little bit of extra thatch you know to kind of block out the rain so so for some volunteers you know it was um maybe a little bit tougher to get situated if you will so but yeah Yeah. that's 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 kind of how that works is uh yeah Peace Corps pretty much will have your your living arrangements and your assignments all laid out for you uh, by the time you get there.
0: Great, great. Well, it sounds like quite a, an adventure. I guess that's the best way to put it. So, yeah, um, that,
1: yeah, for I'm sure. I'm <laughs> curious how
0: how it all kind of came to uh, came to a close. Did you plan on just staying for that initial two years, or what? What was your thought process going, you know, into one and a half years or two years in, and trying to figure out what was next for you?
1: Yeah, I'd say by the time my two years were over, um, I was pretty ready uh, to move on. You know, it's just. As much as I enjoyed being there, as much as I was uh, of how much I was taken away from that experience, I I was certainly ready uh, to uh, to move on. You know, it's it's hard living, like I said, to to be there and constantly have to get running, uh, have having to collect water and doing all those things. And uh, and you know, I was I was curious to see as to where else uh, you know this this could take me. And I was, of course, obviously eager to see family, and then of course um. But there was this there was this girl that I had been talking to uh, back home that I was you know eager to get back and to uh, you know see about maybe trying something with her. Ultimately, it didn't work out. But you know, hey, that's life. Not all things work out the way we hope. So, yeah, I, I pretty much had made the decision that I was only going to stay uh, for the two years, which you know, I had felt like I had fulfilled my commitment. You know, I was there for, for two years uh, as Peace Corps had asked me to. And of course, I went through all the arrangements to uh, get myself uh, back accordingly. And, uh, you know, but I think going home, that was uh, a tough adjustment mm-hmm. because, you know, just being in in this uh, rural village in West Africa for, for this long and just you know, have not having all these uh, modern day amenities, as I'll say, like the electricity, internet, and and um, good cell phone signal, <laughs> and, yeah. and, and, and all and all those things. It, it took a little bit to to get uh, to to get readjusted to being back in the U.S. I definitely had some serious bouts of reverse culture shock, and uh, and also just a lot of just weird uh, feelings. I remember my brother. He had uh picked me up from the airport when I had flown in now a little bit of a side story here uh I had flown in in secret so that way I could surprise uh my family and everyone else uh, nice. back home um because I had told my parents a certain date that I was gonna be uh flying in, and then of course, my parents had pretty much told everyone else, yeah, Josh is getting back here and here we can't we can't wait to see that see him and everything, but I actually told just my younger brother that I was actually going to be flying in a week sooner. Nice. And uh so he picked me up from the airport in order for get this uh, to get this ruse to work <laughs> is uh, <laughs> is that yeah he picked me up um I had flown in on a Saturday and he picked me up and so of course I got in kind of late at night so I couldn't you know he couldn't take me directly to my parents place so um another friend of ours had arranged uh for me to stay at his place uh for the night and my younger brother, he kind of like looked at me funny when, because I got so excited for actually stepping on carpet uh, because many (laughs) of the, because like my home in uh, my my square hut in the Gambia, I had entirely cement flooring and with all the dust and, Mm -hmm. and sand that I could almost never completely get out of my house. So for pretty much about two years, I can't really say I had entirely clean feet because it was just dusty and dirty uh, all the time. And so I step out of the shower there, and then I walk out of the bathroom onto carpet. I almost collapsed on the floor and just wanted to like roll up in it because I hadn't <laughs> stepped on carpet in like nearly uh, and <laughs> in, in nearly two two years. So that was definitely um, a really uh, good feeling, and it was really good to be home. And you know, and and so, and I was really looking forward uh, to being home. And then of course let's um spoiler alert I had a huge huge uh reveal surprise uh, for my mom and dad. Uh my parents uh, had gone to church that following morning on Sunday <laughs> and that was uh um our my moment to sneak into the house. Oh my and, gosh. And, and then I just stepped out of the room. <laughs> I just stepped <laughs> I just stepped out into the kitchen when my parents walked in. Got a really huge uh yeah, <laughs> surprised reaction from them because they weren't expecting me for at least another week, you know. So for oh, me to man. show up, show up, uh, then, you know, randomly as they came home from church, yeah, that was
0: that was pretty exciting for them. So I'm, I'm glad they survived the the shock as well.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know, um, yeah, I, I, I wasn't sure if my I'm, I think my mom, my mother especially was in a little bit of uh shock and awe, and she felt it was pretty surreal for her that, yeah, her son just. You know, miraculously appeared out of nowhere just as she came home from church. Uh, But but yeah, so I was really glad uh, to be home, and I was definitely ready to to be home uh, too. And but it did not come without its challenges as well. It's just getting readjusted to being back to life in uh, the U.S. was a little bit hard, and uh, and it did take a little bit on my part too. I kind of had to sort of uh, have a little bit of self talk with myself uh, because I found myself being you know, kind of critical of a lot mm. of a lot of people and a lot of things that I was seeing, you know, just for two years of just having to go through the whole gamut of uh, just to fulfill basic needs. Like I, you know, I talked about the water and, you know, sometimes I would wait hours uh, for a meal and the meals that mm. would, would typically be pretty simple, you know, rice with maybe some vegetables, or sometimes it would be just like a loaf of bread and butter or sombi, which was uh, just Rice and um, that that had just been boiled in water, and that was pretty much about it. You know, very very uh, simple stuff. And um, but then I come back, and then I just see, you know, just sometimes a lot of people getting all worked up over what I felt were just very very trivial things, Mm. like um, you know the barista at Starbucks gets their order (laughs) wrong, and then they then they flip out on them, (laughs) or the line the line is too long at the grocery store, and they can't you know be patient enough to wait. Or, um, you know, the food just may take a little bit long at a restaurant because they're really busy and then people are getting hangry and, you know, demanding (laughs) where their food is. And, you know, just, and and of course I tried to, like I said, I try not to be uh, too critical. You know, sometimes I would find myself saying things in my head like, oh, you poor, poor thing, you oh yeah, yeah. You just had to wait a little extra minute to get this food that someone else made for you, even though you're living like royalty, getting someone to prepare food for you right now. Uh, but, right. you know, I kind of had to keep myself in check and just kind of remind myself that, you know, th- this this is what they know. This is what they're familiar with. You know, it's hard for them to relate to what life is like for someone fa- like hundreds and thousands of miles away from where they are, unless if they've had that experience uh, themselves. But th- this this is their perspective that they had because this is all they've known. So, right. so I I, I kind of had to remind myself just not to not be, you know, so critical of people. And then ultimately, it's just part of even what Peace Corps' um, role and one of their um, ob- objective is, is to, you know, share stories like like this, like the story that you, this conversation that you and I are having, for instance, to kind of just show people and, you know, present to people what life is like um, for other cultures um, around the world. And, you know, just maybe that th- th- we shouldn't take so many things for granted. You know, I always say that, You know, we may have hard days uh, here in the first world, or as I say, quote unquote, first world problems. And and then, of Mm -hmm. course, you know, and I'm not saying that it's wrong for people to, you know, feel upset or impatient at times. I mean, we're humans. I mean, you know, we naturally experience uh, feelings like that. But, you know, I I, I always just encourage people just to, you know, maybe reflect on the things that you're grateful for and that you have a lot of things uh, to be grateful for. You know I think sometimes and and I won't get too deep down this rabbit hole but you know we have a lot of issues that a lot of people are worried about right now but I I think that the issues that are sort of trending right now in this day and age and again like I said I'm not going to really dive deep down on each individual one but the fact that we're able to complain about those things mm-hmm. means that we have it pretty good because um you know obviously our basic needs are met and our basic needs are met in abundance you know like most of us you know here in the US and you know in other places in Europe you know where you are you know we get to wake up and look up at a ceiling rather than a sky and you know we get to right. turn on a we get to turn on a faucet and have seemingly endless amounts of clean drinking water where so many people around the world you know i mean the water in our toilet bowls David are probably cleaner than what most people have to drink around the world well i'm not going to say sure. maybe most people but many people right and um you know, we can open up a fridge and a pantry and have uh, a well-stocked uh, amounts of food. And or, like I said, you just push a few buttons on your smartphone and someone's going to bring a ready-made meal to your door. Or you have a grocery store with options up the wazoo of foods that you could choose from. And since we have all of those, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to call them luxuries. Mm. And since we have all those ways to fulfill our basic needs, again, in abundance, we have the luxury to actually think about and complain uh, about so many other trivial things, or to, um, I guess I'll say, get worked up over a lot of issues that you know we that are kind of sort of trending right now in society. You know, I think because I think about like my host family in the Gambia. You know, they're not worried about things like politics and, and all these other things because so much of their day is spent just making sure that they're collecting enough water that, you know, they are preparing enough food for their family, you know, it's just every single day, it's just so much goes into just fulfilling basic needs. And then when, and so therefore that's their focus. They're not focused on, you know, what's trending in in social media right now. They're not worried about what's happening hundreds of Mm -hmm. miles away from, you know, where they are. And they're not dwelling on, you know, all these, uh, you know, all these things because, they're quite frankly trying to survive, and so, right. so that so that's one thing that uh, that's one thing that I always like to try to share people from my Peace Corps experience is that you know you're not wrong for feeling worked up and frustrated with things that happen in your life. You know, we all we're all you know fighting our own battles, but if you have your basic needs met, then you're good to go. You know, you right. have, you you've uh, you've got your foundationals taken care of and so that'll set you up well to handle like these tougher situations uh, that you may face um again a little bit of a side rant there but sure, you know sure. ju- that's that's just something that you know i've learned from my peace corps experience that i that i've integrated into my own life i like to share it through my own podcast so i you know appreciate the chance to you know share it through uh, this platform too man
0: yeah, absolutely. I'm super happy to to hear it. And I totally agree with what you're saying. So I'll let it but I'll let it sit, you know, as you've said it, I, I won't elaborate it on too much. But uh, I guess as we wrap up here, you mentioned your podcast. So I'd love to give the audience here a chance to hear more about that, what what the name of it is, where they can find it, what it's about, and what you're trying to do with it, even, you know, more than you maybe you've said about it so far.
1: Sure thing. Yeah. I appreciate that. Yeah. Well, my, my podcast is, uh, the all around adventure Podcast. It's a mix of travel adventure and self-development. I welcome a wide array of uh, different travelers and adventurers on the show to hear their stories. And I also try to extrapolate some of the life lessons that they've learned from their experiences. And, you know, like I said, travelers of all kinds, I've, I have, um, I have elite warriors on the podcast. I've talked to a couple of uh, special forces guys who have come on my show. You know, scientists. You know, in the archaeology field and in like you know the cultural heritage space. Um, expatriates like yourself. You know, you've been on the show, David. So if um, you know our listeners uh, would like to hear kind of a prequel to this conversation, you know, um, you just uh, I, you just been featured recently on the podcast. And yeah, so that's really what it's all about, you know. Again, just kind of looking at my own experiences with, um, uh, you know, living abroad in 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 West Africa for Peace Corps, being a grad student in England, which unfortunately we weren't able to touch on very much uh, today. But um, you know, just all all these life lessons and experiences that I that I've learned, and you know, I wanted to have an outlet to share those with uh, the rest of the world. And as I've met more travelers along the way and through my podcast. You know, I just kind of found that travel and adventure, you know, self-development is a common is a common denominator. So many other travelers that I were meeting, they were talking about the exact same thing, saying, Yeah, I've grown so much from my travels and adventures, and just I've learned so much from interacting with different cultures and stepping out of my comfort zone to experience uh, new and exciting things. And It's been so applicable to other areas of uh, not only my life, but the lives of the travelers that I've had a chance to interact with and interview uh, on my show. So yeah, so that's what the listeners can expect. You know, expect to hear some pretty amazing stories from a wide array of different types of uh, travelers and, you know, get some life lessons. You know, you may want to bring a uh, pen and paper when you listen to the show. Um, and then you could find uh, you can find the show on pretty much anywhere you listen uh, to to podcasts, Apple Podcasts, uh, Spotify, Stitcher. Um, you can find it all there. Um, my website is allaroundadventure.com. If you want to, you know, kind of maybe read some of the show notes, and you can also listen to the episodes uh, there as well. Um, I'm also on YouTube. If you want to watch uh, the video ver- versions of uh, my conversations uh, with the travelers that I have. Um, I also have a solo cast called travel reflections that um, you could listen to and tune into as well. And um, yeah, you know, uh, do feel free to, to give it a listen. You know, I take pretty good pride in putting together all those episodes and getting the content out there for the world to, to check out. And so hope everyone likes it.
0: Awesome. Well, I'll be sure to put all of those links in the show notes and help everyone that's interested to be able to find it. It's definitely a great podcast really appreciate the opportunity to be on there myself. And of course, to have Josh on the show today. So thank you so much again for being on the show, for sharing all of your insights and really coming at it from quite a different angle from a lot of the other guests that I've had so far. So it's great to get your um, experience and expertise and love to see where your travels take you, whether that's within the US with your job now, or maybe some new adventures in the future and check in and see how things are going. But uh, again, thanks so much for being on the show.
1: Yeah, I appreciate you having me on, man. Been been looking forward to this, looking forward to you know reconnecting and uh, you know. And, and I appreciate you you having me on. I know a lot of legwork goes into preparing for these interviews, so it was nice just to, just to get to show up and just talk.
0: You know? Yeah, it's, <laughs> it's not um, bad, right?
1: <laughs> yeah, so I, I had a good time, man. Appreciate you having me
0: on. All right, thanks so much. See you soon. If you enjoyed today's episode, please take a minute and give us a five-star review on iTunes or wherever you listen to your podcasts. It helps new listeners find us and lets us know that we are putting out content that you appreciate. You can quickly find out where and how to rate us at ratethispodcast.com slash expat empire. If you know anyone who would appreciate this podcast, please tell them about it so we can continue growing the global expat empire community. Keep up to date on new expat empire podcast episodes by pressing the subscribe button in the podcasting app of your choice. You can also visit expatempire.com and sign up for our newsletter to get our free ebook, Top 10 Tips for Moving Abroad, right now. We are also on Facebook and Instagram at expatempire, so be sure to follow us there. We are currently offering free consulting calls to discuss your moving plans and how Expat empire can help you to achieve them. Please visit our website to schedule your call today. Thanks for listening, and stay tuned for the next episode in the coming weeks.